death rattle. That's the sound some dying people make, caused by a buildup of mucus and other secretions in the throat as the body begins to slowly lose its life force. It can sound wet and crackling, or like a soft moan, or snoring, or gargling. No one knows if a dying person finds a death rattle disturbing or distressing, as no one can pretend to know with certainty the inner subjective experience of anyone too ill to express it. The common medical assumption, though, is that they are not distressed by it. But the death rattle is disturbing to family members and loved ones who are with loved ones as they are dying. They typically interpret the sounds as indicative of pain and the absence of a good death. But if the death rattle is not painful, instead of muting it, and instead of simply paralyzing the executed, it may be better to recognize the bright line that separates the living from the dead. That was Joel Zivit and Ira Bedzo reading from their first opinion essay entitled What the Death Rattle and Capital Punishment Have in Common. They're both professors at Emory University in Atlanta, where Joel is an ICU physician, and Ira is a philosopher who directs the Miriam Institute Project in International Ethics and Leadership. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. I'm here with Carl Hick, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Carl, how is Takeda using technology to create potentially life-changing treatments and vaccines? Thanks, Angus. Data and digital technologies are fundamentally changing the way that we live and we work. Here at Takeda, we see these advances as a real opportunity to drive better health outcomes through more personalized, patient-centric experiences. For example, we're exploring the expanded use of AI augmented algorithms to provide faster, personalized diagnoses for patients and to predict treatment responses. Another way we're investing in new tech here at Takeda is by empowering our employees to learn new skills. Think of that as a democratization of technology in emerging areas like robotic process automation and predictive analytics. We also have identified the need for new technology talent on our team. We're hiring for data scientists, data engineers, cloud and solution architects. These are just a few of the many ways that we're working to develop our talent and use data and digital technologies to build a better future for patients. Thanks, Carl. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's www.takeda.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you both, Joel and Ira. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I know you're both at Emory, but Emory's a big place. What brought you two together to collaborate on this essay? Joel, do you want to take that first and then I'll correct you? Sure. <laughs> I've been at Emory for uh, about a decade now. I'm an ICU doctor and uh, I also have a connection with the Emory Center for Ethics. And I was recently uh, um, teaching a, a class. The person who was in charge of that class told me about Ira, that Ira was new. And so I read Ira's bio and instantly recognized in Ira a kindred spirit. 
And so I reached out to him, uh, and um, luckily for me, he replied. Joel came into my office, and uh, we spoke for about an hour, and immediately I was enchanted by the possibilities of what we can do together. But after the talk, uh, Joel sent me the two pieces from JAMA and said, there might be something here, do you want to potentially write on this? To which I think I immediately wrote back in all caps, yes. From there, we just started uh, collaborating and, and putting this piece together. Cool. So this is your first collaborative essay? This is our first. This will not be our last. You started us off with an excerpt about the death rattle. Could you tell everybody what it is and what it actually sounds like? As an ICU physician, I, of course, um, have a lot of experience with uh, the dying. I've been present uh, many occasions uh, at the bedside of of uh, my patients when they die. When a person is dying, and of course that death will take many forms, one of the things that can happen is that um, near death, the muscles of the face relax, the body relaxes, uh, the jaw falls backwards, uh, and as a consequence, the airway uh, that normally would be kept open in an awake state becomes partly obstructed. But the drive to breathe um, is still present. And so now a person begins to draw heavily against a partially obstructed airway. And the sound that it makes uh, can sound something like snoring. Um, it can be episodic. It can be brief and, and then long. And it can be dramatic to witness, no question. Um, and it can appear, uh, I suppose, to some to be uh, signifying of something that is distressing uh, to the person. And I've had on many occasions, families ask me, you know, what is what is meant by what they observe and, and how they should respond? Yeah, I would, I would also say, if you don't mind, Patrick, um, that when you're a family member or a loved one who's at the bedside of someone dying, uh, you're, you're not really prepared for it. Any type of uh, action um, or um, activity that you see, you're going to immediately um, think to interpret it with some sort of meaning. Um, whether that meaning is something that I could be doing, uh, I should be understanding, or a meaning even for the dying patient. So in that respect, the death rattle then becomes something that's very significant for patients' loved ones, because instead of seeing it as a physiological process, they see it as something that has moral weight to it. It sounds like your essay was sparked by the results of a randomized controlled trial conducted in the Netherlands called the scopolamine butyl bromide given prophylactically for death rattle trial. Uh, that's a mouthful. Um, I'm not sure how the authors got the acronym SILENCE out of it, but they did, and that's what the trial was called. Can you describe what it was about? Well, the, the trial basically was designed to see whether or not the use of this medication you know, would reduce the sound that a person was making uh, as they died. This really was a, a trial that I think whose endpoints were, you know, were very much subjective, were very much just the experience of what was heard. So I can't make much of it Beyond, again, I, maybe the, the trial was not very ambitious with respect to trying to create some, you know, some deeper conclusion, but at least it seemed to reach its, 
its targeted endpoint, which was to show that there was less audible noise uh, when people were given this scopolamine uh, butyl bromide. The experiment and the editorial um, uh, show a good distinction between the goals of research and the goals of clinical care. Right? The goals of research are really for you know, the acquisition of knowledge. Uh, and as long as you're not harming your patients and there is a potential for benefit, um, then you know, it could be worthwhile research. You know, this study showed that it's possible to silence a death rattle. Now let's look at clinical practice. Well, clinical practice, the goals are not simply just the acquisition of knowledge. It's care for a vulnerable person, a care for a patient, you have a fiduciary responsibility. So your primary responsibilities is to be focused on the welfare of the individual, not simply the acquisition of knowledge and not simply the comfort of others around when that comfort is at the expense of or potentially using another as a means to that end. I, I was very disappointed by the editorial. I was hoping that the, the editorial would take the position that would address the things that Ira raises, the problems here. Uh, that's what I expected the editorial to say. And instead, it seemed to embrace it in a way that was, I think, in many ways, the impetus for why Ira and I decided we need to, to address this and, and take this on. So in the, in the trial done in the Netherlands, half of a group of dying people were given an injection of scopolamine and the other half were given, an, I guess, an injection of a placebo. And the drug reduced by a certain percentage the number of people or the percentage of people experiencing the death rattle. What does scopolamine do? Well, scopolamine is a, is a drug that is used... Um, it has several uses. One use, it, it actually can treat nausea. Um, it's also here used as a, what's called a drying agent, an anti-sialogogue is, is the technical name. And so the concern here was that it's the secretions themselves that would normally pool in the, in the throat that are then ineffectively reduced in quantity. And as there's less secretion there, then that would then uh, uh, cause a drier airway, and so therefore less less of these of this of the sounds that would be the combination of the movement of air against now some you know some degree of fluid, and so you know that they were really simply just trying to dry out the mouth. Now I would also say for, I could suggest, for example, that a dry mouth is actually a very unpleasant experience for most people. That a certain degree of moisture in the mouth is actually the desired and normal state. So when drugs of this nature are used, sometimes patients who are alive and well complain actually about the dryness of their mouth now. I find that, again, an extra level of distressing to me um, that this is so very much a, a cosmetic kind of solution to, some, uh, to a situation that is far from cosmetic. You know, I can speak from direct and recent experience that the death rattle sound is disturbing or distressing to those who sit with somebody who's dying. My much beloved mother-in-law, Helen Cerna Daher, died at home a few weeks ago with her whole family. Sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. With her whole family gathered round. That was really wonderful. But it was hard to hear her breathe near the end without wanting to do something about it. We were fortunate to have gotten advice from a family friend who was a hospice nurse for 15 years, who counseled us not to sit her up or suction the secretions 
because that might be jarring or intrusive for her and to just let her be. Are there, are there uh, general rules among doctors, nurses, and other clinicians about managing somebody with this kind of breathing? You know, I'd like to you know, echo, I think, what Ira had said, and I think Ira raised some excellent points, that the experience of witnessing a person dying is, for most people, the first time. And so the job, I think, of the doctor or the nurse or whoever else is present and knowledgeable is, first of all, to be a teacher and to explain to people what it is that they're going to see, including you know, what might outwardly appear to be unpleasant. And my instruction to families is pretty simple. I say, you know, I want you, I ask you to, to engage your empathy as to what you see. And if it seems to you that what you're seeing is distressing, then we may address that in, in some way. We may use medication. Uh, if, if it seems manifestly to be something that we recognize as pain. The problem is that pain is difficult to gauge in someone who is otherwise not responsive. And, and that, I think, is the crux of the problem here, is that what outwardly may appear to be distressing is arguably, or at least not clearly, a manifestation of distress uh, to the person. But of course, it is distressing to the person watching. And so I think it requires explanation and support uh, and guidance to reassure people that what they are seeing is not necessarily distressing to the person who is experiencing it. That is the person that is dying. Yeah, I mean, palliative care teams are trained to not only look at and respond to the suffering of a patient, but also to recognize and, and, uh, and also ameliorate the suffering of, of family members. Uh, what we found, uh, and Joel, correct me if, if I'm mistaken, but what we found is so troubling about the research on the death rattle was looking to ameliorate the suffering of the family members uh, wasn't in terms of the psychosocial issues of how they're responding to the loss of a loved one. It was removing the signs or the symbols that might cause moral distress or might cause the, the moral weight of witnessing someone pass away. Um, without any expectations. Like, for example, instead of providing depth of understanding, it is removing that which might lead to depth of understanding. The assumption is that this type of breathing doesn't bother the dying person. What's that based on? Do you know? Look, to be fair, it, it, I suppose it's hard to know. I, I would say that my experience has taught me with many, many patients who have had partially obstructed airways as a consequence of, say, being rendered in an anesthetic state, never report afterwards that when their airway was partly obstructed in that way, and when they were also in a deeply unresponsive state, which is what a person who is dying generally is, there's no report of distress. It's not recalled. Um, it's not described as painful. I mean, certainly to be short of breath, can be painful uh, and can be distressing. And if it appears that that is what's at play, and that looks different than simply a partly obstructed airway, then it would be reasonable and ethical under those circumstances to say, add an extra dose of an opioid. We can't really know the interior experience of someone who's about to die. There's no way to measure it. But my experience uh, of of similar situation, I think is reassuring to me that that sort of uh, 
partly obstructed airway, as I described, is, is very likely not distressing at all to a person who is close to death. Ira, have you been in this situation before with someone who's dying? I have. Um, you know, this is never something I ever like to talk about just on a first date, if you will. Um, but, uh, you know, when my, when my grandmother passed away, um, I remember hearing her um, and I was with, you know, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins. We actually, she's from Montreal. We, we flew into Montreal to see her. We was going to come a week later to visit and then had to come up because she had an aneurysm and then was in the hospital. And I just remember every movement, every noise, we were just clamoring at it for meaning. I mean, I was a much younger man then, so I didn't know as much as I do now. And I felt not only impotent, but unable to express and communicate to the woman I loved who was just lying, lying before me. It's, it's, it's so hard. Yeah. You both mentioned the editorial that accompanied this, um, this article. And the editorial was written by two U.S. physicians. And they basically wrote that it's sometimes okay to relieve the distress of those bearing witness to the death, even if you don't know what it's doing for the person who's dying. Coming at it from the direction of philosophy, Ira, is giving comfort to the family a good enough reason to do something? No, of course. Of course you should do whatever you can to alleviate the, the suffering of family members who are only there because they love the person who's dying and want to make sure that they can not only be there at that person's last moments, but you know that they can bear witness not only to the death, but also to the love and life that they shared with this person. And a palliative care physician and a palliative care team should recognize that and honor it and alleviate the suffering as much as possible as well. We're not saying that. What we're, what we're saying is that one is a matter of priorities. The priorities should go to the patient. Two is a matter of process, right? You can alleviate suffering um, in two ways. Remove the pain or provide better context and understanding for what you're experiencing so that suffering doesn't turn into suffering, but the experience turns into something that could be transformative or at least meaningful. This, the, the issue that we find so philosophically difficult is it, it causes us to look at death as simply just a process with no values, with no meaning, with no understanding, that then when you look at death in such a way, you begin to look at the value of life in such a way. And I don't want to curate now, Joel, I'm sorry if I'm speaking for myself. I don't want to speak for you on this one, but I'm sure you'll have much to say. I don't want to curate death experiences to make life seem superficial. That scares me. By making death seem uh, so um, uh, positive, so, so peaceful, so beautiful, that it becomes something that um, separates it in the, or emphasizes it to the over the desire to live. And I think that there is a lot of emphasis now about, about uh, working towards this idea of a good death. In the essay, you make the leap from silencing the death rattle to using paralytics as part of legal execution conducted in the U.S., how do you get from one to the other? Uh, I think you get to, from one to the other actually quite easily, unfortunately. 
uh, in that lethal injection in this country is very much uh, also a curated kind of, uh, of dying. The U.S. Constitution unambiguously opposes punishment that is deemed to be cruel. And so a way that a person dies is very important when it comes to capital punishment. Even though the law, of course, turns on the experience of the executed, the only way to really know would be to be gauged by witnesses who also bring to bear their empathy. And so if a witness finds the death uh, that they observe to be troubling, then it could raise the possibility that that death, in fact, was cruel. So lethal injection was perfect in its design to outwardly appear to be peaceful, but there was no attention paid to the inward experience. Uh, and in certain circumstances, a paralyzing drug is added to the uh, medications that are given uh, to cause death. And once that is given, of course, it will always look peaceful and quiet outwardly to an observer. And I think that there is a, a connection here that, that is important to raise. With the use of paralytics to make things look peaceful, is it really peaceful or is there some research showing otherwise? Well, a, a paralytic is a drug that will temporarily make it impossible for muscles in the body called skeletal muscles. These are all the muscles that are involved in, you know, movement, natural movement, uh, you know, the, the muscles that we see, uh, also the muscles of breathing. But what paralytics don't do uh, in, in any capacity or under any dose is affect uh, the awareness that a person is experiencing. So a person that is paralyzed with these kinds of drugs would be very much awake and aware, but now would be rendered uh, immobilized. And so if nothing else would happen, if they only received that drug, they would also die, but they would die now of asphyxiation. They would basically not be able to breathe and they would die in that way and they would know it. So paralyzing drugs here are, are very dark. Uh, and, and let me also add that paralyzing drugs are actually used in some forms of assisted dying, not only in the, in the um, executed uh, individuals, but also in certain circumstances as part of, of medication used in assisted dying. You wrote in the essay that this method of execution, quote, wrongly impersonates a medical act, and the impersonation is so convincing that even doctors and the public are fooled. What do you mean by that? I think that, you know, execution doesn't need medicine. It, it didn't need it. Um, it chose it because it recognized that it was causing death in a way that might be cruel. So maybe even I could imagine that there was some um, positive, although I think greatly misplaced idea to bring medicine on board to improve execution. And this is not a place uh, that medicine should exist, that killing is not a form of treatment, uh, not in this way. Uh, and this is something that's separate. When you ask a medical professional to do something that is a state-sponsored killing or a state-sponsored act, uh, then what you're doing to the public is you're saying... Forget the fact that this is a political act, a legal act, and so forth. 
take a look at the person who is engaged in that act and imagine the authority, the loyalty, the trust that you have to others that you relate with in society who have that same demeanor, position, coat, and therefore trust that this person is doing the good and the right thing because they do the good and the right thing to you, right? It, it, as we would say in my world, it makes it seem kosher. Uh, I've actually been the witness to an execution. I was asked to witness an execution uh, by an inmate. Uh, I was an expert witness in this inmate's defense uh, because I was asked to talk about the, the medical component of, his, uh, of the method of execution. So I was a witness. And when the inmate died, a man walked into the execution chamber who was a physician who I, I came to know later who was wearing a lab coat. And I thought to myself, what's the lab coat for? Like, what, what are you doing here? And now the lab coat here is besmirched and represents something much darker, much more sinister, and certainly not within the traditional house you know, of the ethics of medicine. So I, I, I don't want to put words in either of your mouths, but it sounds like this form of execution could leak over or spill over into that cruel and unusual punishment area. I, I think I would agree. I mean, I, I think that the thing that, you know, the, some of the work that I've done revealed a surprising finding, which was at least in the circumstance of execution, the way that execution is conducted that there's a common finding of pulmonary edema in executed individuals. Uh, their lungs fill with fluid, and that was not present at the beginning of the execution. That only could have occurred as a consequence of the drugs being used. And that, that experience of pulmonary edema is muted either by the paralytic itself or by other medications which would kind of obtuned and make it difficult for uh, the person as they die to communicate that their lungs are filling up with fluid. The claim is made that what is happening is that a person simply falls off to sleep and they die. And, and the dying in one's sleep is considered to be, I think, you know, the gold standard, so to speak. I'm not saying that watching an execution or rather watching someone dying is, you know, is not distressing, but I think it would be more distressing if people could actually recognize that what really is happening here is that these control of outward symptoms in no way or, or potentially even worsen the experience of the dying person at the expense of their own discomfort while watching. And that I think is, is wrong. Yeah, the only thing I would add is it may or may not be considered cruel and unusual punishment, but let's be very clear that it's not a medical act. You know, we, we referenced the the current moment that the federal government and the Biden administration, I guess, is trying to decide whether um, the Boston bomber should uh, have his his punishment be reinstated as execution. And I, I guess I, I want to add in any time there's a conversation about execution and about um, someone who's who's committed an act of 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 killing, of murder, that I understand the gravity of that. So I'm not trying in any way to make light of the fact that that someone, for example, the Boston bomber, you know, ended the lives of other people in a very cruel, cruel way, and that much suffering was the consequence of what he did. E even 
knowing that, even saying that, it, it doesn't, it shouldn't allow us to, to descend into any form of punishment to try to satisfy, you know, the, uh, uh, the kind of the wrong sort of urge that maybe is trying to be satisfied here. Yes, we, you know, we, we seek justice. And, and yes, we, we want our court system to, to do the right thing. But I, I worry about the use of, of medicine here as an arm of, of, of killing. Our article isn't really about one individual, whether it's a person currently dying at the bedside or you know, the Boston Marathon murderer. Um, it's, it's a more of a global point in terms of where we're going and, and what we're valuing to get there. Um, we want to care for our patients and we want to make sure that our country has a strong sense of, of justice in the way that we aspire to have justice be in our country. But we want to make sure that we think very hard and we think very clearly about what our immediate steps and choices that we make now will lead to the types of practices and decisions we'll make in the long term. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for thinking of STAT for your essay and for this provocative time here. It's certainly given me something to think about. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. And Joel, thank you. It's, yeah. always, <laughs> it's always fun to talk to you. <laughs> you too, Ira. And thank you, Patrick. And, and we very much appreciate the chance to, you know, to appear on your podcast. Um, Patrick, those are really good questions. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I can't believe you got me to talk about my grandmother. <laughs> never, never would have done that. I'm honored. You know, Patrick, I, a number of years ago, I guess my mother died, and I was at the bedside, and uh, I actually did a TED Talk about it that I talk about. Um, my talk is called, uh, I think, Medical Assistance in Dying, Not as Easy as It Looks. Mm. And, and I kind of start with a story about the death of my own mother. And for me, you know, once they figured out that I was a doctor, the palliative experience was just to drop off a bunch of opioids and stuff. This is Canada, so I guess they didn't care. And, and, uh, and just to kind of be the palliator, uh, which was, you know, very challenging. And, and um, you know, my mother died at home, and, and which infuriated me because... I wanted her to go to the hospital because that's where, that's where we do this kind of stuff. Right. So she, she, you know, but she, she got what she wanted and I was there and uh, it is supposed to be difficult. Mm. And, and in, in the difficult, difficultness of it, I think is, you know, I suppose is the lesson. With my mother-in-law, we had an interesting interplay. Um, so there were, she has four children. Um, my wife is a nurse and her brother is an emergency doc. So, this was all happening at home and the interplay between my brother-in-law who for all the right reasons wanted to do things. And my wife who had been a, she's a, uh, she's a nurse midwife labor had been a labor and delivery nurse and had worked on uh, general medicine floors to begin with and, and was with people who were dying. And she was very wonderful and helpful to kind of ease my brother-in-law off, you know, we don't need to do anything now. And mm -hmm. it was difficult. I could see how difficult it was for him. Um, Cause he, 
he was doing things that he thought were right or wanted to do things that he thought were right. So it was, you know, it's a, it's a difficult time, no matter who you are. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.